0: our heads dearly father thank you so much for this incredible privilege of gathering together as family thank you for truth that sets us free father thank you for keeping these doors open to this magnificent church a church that you ordained from eternity past father we know it's not about the building we know it's about the people in it in the spirit But we are so very grateful for this opportunity and this place of peace and quiet to be able to break bread together. That is the very bread of life. Father, we pray for those in the congregation that are ill, that can't be with us this evening for a variety of reasons. Our prayers go out to them. We want them to know that we're with them in spirit and that our hope is that you return them to the fold sometime soon. Your will be done, of course. We pray also for those that are still lost in this world, Father, without hope, that they be humbled before it's too late and that they receive saving faith. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make an evening like this a reality for each one of us to enjoy. Thank you. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, Proverbs 17, Wisdom, Part 12. On Sunday, the Spirit asked us to synthesize two passages. Let's do that to get us situated this evening. Go to 2 Corinthians. 9.15 2 Corinthians 9.15 <clears throat> Again, we're going to just synthesize two uh, well-known verses actually in the Word of God. 2 Corinthians 9.15 reads 2 Corinthians 9.15 we're waiting for Tammy. <laughs> Tabs. <laughs> Second Corinthians 9.15, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. If you've still got a New American, uh, I believe it says indescribable. Same idea though, right? For his indescribable, his inexpressible gift. As we've been learning, Jesus is this gift, this treasure, go to Luke 12.34, Luke 12, verse 34, and so on one hand, we have thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift, and that gift, of course, is Jesus Christ. He is the great treasure in our lives. So if we go to Luke 12.34, we see another principle. Luke 12.34, For where your heart, oh, excuse me, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So, if Jesus is the treasure, then our hearts will be with him also. In other words, if we treasure Jesus, that's where our hearts will be. If we treasure something else, that's where our hearts will be. Could be you choose. We'll have a lot to say. The Spirit has a lot to say about that choice this evening. Again, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Again, if Jesus is the treasure, then our hearts will be with him also. Up here on the board, the value of Jesus. Jesus, his person, is the treasure. That's what the Spirit's been revealing to us in Holy Scripture. This is not an emotional thing. It's not like, oh, Jesus, you know, Je- no, no, this is not like that. He is the treasure, so says Holy Scripture. It's not an emotional thing, it's not really an option, as we'll see this evening as well, for believers. Jesus' his person is the treasure. When a person values him above all else, their heart is with him always. Ephesians three fourteen 14-19, Philippians 3, Seven to fifteen. Go to Ephesians three fourteen, and we'll see what the holy, uh, holy scripture has to say on this topic, the value of Jesus. Again, Jesus is the treasure. Ephesians three fourteen. <clears throat> Ephesians three fourteen reads: For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven. And on earth is named, verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth length and height and depth and to know the love of christ that's tantamount to saying to know christ to know the love of christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of god that's a really nice depiction of the value of jesus that he might dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Again, the value of Jesus is Jesus, his person, is the treasure. When a person values him above all else, their heart is with him always. Let's go to the second passage now. Philippians 3, verse 7. Philippians 3, verse 7. Seven. Paul wrote prodigiously about this particular topic, how much he gave up, how much he was willing to give up. Philippians 3, 7, all because of the value he placed on just knowing Jesus Christ. That's what we just learned there. To know the love of him is to know him. He is elsewhere, same writer, Philippians 3, 7, but whatever gain I had, you know, after all said and done, all that stuff I used to be, the Pharisee of Pharisees, you know, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. In other words, who cares? Who cares what I had all, all that other stuff before? The reputation, maybe even the money, the, you know, all that, the knowledge, the religion, et cetera, et cetera, all that I counted as loss. For the sake of Christ, uh, indeed, verse 8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth. You want to talk about value, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. How's that for perspective? The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Nothing compares, in other words. Do you see it in Holy Scripture? He's saying nothing even comes close. I count everything as loss. Brass tax, nothing else matters. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Good, good riddance. <laughs> in order that I may gain Christ. Verse 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and that uh, by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have attained it, already obtained this, or uh, am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Welcome to service tonight. That's what these messages have been about. Let those of us who are mature think this way. In other words, nothing else matters, honestly. At the end of the day, nothing else matters. It's Christ. He's the pinnacle. He's the best. He's our everything. He's our great treasure. We're willing to sell everything for it. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, god will reveal that to also to you again the point on the board the value of jesus jesus's person is the treasure when a person values him above all else their heart is with him always now reflect with me if you value something above all else aren't you willing to give up everything else of perceived value just to have that one thing you remember being a kid I swear, I'll give up. I, won't. I heard this not that long ago. I'll never ask for anything again. If you just get me this one toy. <laughs> I'm like, kid, what? Seriously, how long is that going to last? Till the car? Till it breaks, right? You know what I'm getting at. We grow up and we're basically giant kids. And we do the same thing. And we see some shiny new object and we, we just got to have I'll do anything for that thing. Could be a thing, could be a person, could whatever. situation, whatever. If you value something above all else, aren't you willing to give up pretty much everything else of perceived value just to have that one thing? I mean, isn't that why you ladies love romance books? Oh, Scott got really quiet in here. Scott's like, no, seriously. Isn't it because you read about how some dude scales mountains and fights epic battles just to make it back to his so-called true love? Isn't that what romance books are all about? Isn't that what Hollywood is constantly selling us? This romantic notion of sacrificing all that someone has for the person they value or treasure the most is a theme that sells even with animals. Have you ever seen that movie, The War Horse? Yeah, it runs basically across a continent. For what, the love of a human? I don't know. Hell in high water? Uh, we'll do anything for that thing that we have the utmost value assigned to. Does that make sense? In romance novels, even with animals involved are built around that very premise. And we eat it up, we gobble it up. The point I'm making is, if you value something above all else, aren't you willing to give up everything else of perceived value to have that one thing? Isn't that the story of Romeo and Juliet? I mean, they were willing to risk the love of their own families for each other. This may sound funny, but it's true. Isn't that the story of, do you remember Rumpelstiltskin? Nobody? You remember? Thank you. The miller's daughter spins gold for the king because that's what he wants. He wants wealth. Rumpelstiltskin has any wealth he wants because he's, you know, like a magician. He just wants a baby. We humans tend to lock our eyes on something of perceived value and we sacrifice or even compromise everything else in our lives to ensure we obtain so called treasure. We get horse blinders and we just go for it. And the moral of the story up here on the board is be careful what you treasure. That's what the Bible tells us. Just be careful what you treasure. Many people, maybe most, I guess, most is probably the better word, value the things of the world more than the inexpressible gift that is Jesus Christ. Most people I know value the things of the world more than him, more than the ultimate treasure. But here's the warning. Go to Matthew 16:26. Matthew 16, verse 26. Again, be careful what you treasure. You might end up with a broken heart. Matthew sixteen twenty six. Here's what the Bible has to say about valuing the things of the world. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in return for his soul, obviously, if you're going to give up your soul, you value something more than it. Is that fair? Be careful what you treasure. Jesus told a parable about this same thing. Go to Matthew 13:44. Matthew 13:44. certainly not a novel concept, certainly not a unique concept that is taught in the Holy Bible. Jesus told a parable about the same thing, Matthew 13, 44. Just the opposite direction this time, right? The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Why? Because his heart is with that field. His heart, the treasure, as it's perceived to him, is in that field. On Sunday, the Spirit gave us another topic that is a little more subtle. It's a little more subtle, but no less, you know, quote, treasured in this world. And that's beauty. Especially in, well, I shouldn't say in America, because if you go to France, it's the same thing. You go to a lot of different countries. Um, Beauty is um, one of the highest forms of, of trade, of merchandising, of uh, capitalizing on stuff. I just read a blog I wrote on this and recommend it to you up here on the board. It's a blog I wrote a while ago, but lucky for you, it's in the latest installment of Diary of a German. It's right there in volume three. Isn't that cool? What's the message we're sending? It was about that beautiful young girl that got essentially ruined by her mother, who told her that external beauty matters a lot. There's a booming economy built around this thing called beauty. And mind you, it's not the beauty in the Bible. It's perverted. There's a booming economy built around it. According to Fior Markets, which is just a market research firm, the global beauty and personal care product market, and this is product only, not services, not hairdressers, you know, nail salons, foot salons, none of that. This is just product. $750 billion a year. That's almost a trillion dollars on beauty. Cosmetic surgery market is expected to reach about sixty-seven billion by twenty twenty-six. That might be the U.S. I didn't. That might be global though. But does it matter? That number is so big—sixty-seven billion. I mean, God must have made a lot of mistakes, huh? Enough said. If you reject the idea that there's a massive economy built around beauty and vanity, you're just being willfully ignorant. Now, is everyone, just as a disclaimer, because I don't want people getting all like antsy on me, is everyone who buys makeup a slave to beauty? No, that's not what I'm saying. Not even close. In fact, the Bible doesn't say much. Trust me, I did some research. I looked hard, too. The Bible doesn't say much about makeup and such, to be honest. It really doesn't. It says a few things, but it's, it's, it's kind of not nice. It's basically saying, you know, you Jezebel, stop making yourself up so you can be a tramp, in other words. But it doesn't say much after that. It doesn't say much about makeup. So if a wife wishes to make herself somehow more attractive to her husband, then you know what? She has that right. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. Honestly, the Bible's pretty silent on it. So if I was to teach you any more than that, I'd be speculating, which I won't do. And a lot of people like doing that because they like to be, I don't know, novel. They like to be, you know, that person that knows. No, stop. I'm just telling you, it's pretty silent. Read Song of Solomon when you get a chance and you'll see that God's not against beauty or the recognition of it or the appreciation of it. He's really not. It just cannot become the thing you treasure inordinately as the way lots of people do would say money. It's just another thing that's been perverted, a form of currency, for lack of a better term, in this world that's been perverted beauty, money, intelligence, uh, et etc. These are all potential areas of blessing in our lives. But up here on the board, as I've taught you many, many times, it's not the blessing, it's what you think of it. So maybe you have been blessed with a certain beauty that your spouse really, uh, and men can be beautiful too, your spouse really appreciates about you. Hey, I look at that as kind of a blessing, right? Whatever. With or without doesn't really matter, but maybe you have, and it's, maybe it's a blessing. That's cool, right? But if you think that you're better because of it, you've already entered into a perversion. You've already entered into an economy that's going to hurt you and those around you, potentially. Certainly you, because you've put your you know, stock into that thing, instead of actually being beautiful in Christ. In the case of beauty, uh, you are beautifying yourself, or are you beautifying yourself for the tension of your husband, ladies, or your wife, men, if you take care of yourself, or everyone else? That's the question, I guess. That would be the litmus test. Who are you trying to look good for? Go to 1 Peter 3.1. Peter wrote about this. Again, the Bible is silent on a lot of this stuff, okay? But it does have context. And so if we read in context, we get a notion of what God thinks about beauty. First Peter 3, 1 Peter <clears> 3.1 <throat> 1 Peter 3, verse 1 Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Does it say you're gonna get won over because you look good? You're gonna win over your spouse because you look good? Not even close. Not even close. When they see your respectful, you might say the fear of God even, and pure conduct. Do not let, you see this is Holy Scripture, this is not Ed Collins, right? This is Holy Scripture. Do not let your adorning be external. You know, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. Do you see it? Let me read it again with you. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Peter wrote about what type of beauty a woman should be focusing on. That's what he was writing about. If you really want to be beautiful ladies, he's speaking contextually to you wives out there, Um, focus on inner beauty. Focus on the Word of God. Focus on growing in the grace and knowledge of God. Focus on sanctification. Inner beauty. In other words, let that be your focus. And if you're not a wife, okay, you, you women out there that are not wives that to hear my voice, you shouldn't be flaunting yourself around like a floozy does. It's unbecoming and it's terrible. It's a terrible representation of Jesus Christ. To put it plainly, up here on the board, are your eyes on self or Jesus? Do you want someone to be attracted to your beauty? or the beauty of Christ in you? That's your motivation. That's your litmus test. Do you want other people's eyes to be on how good you look or how good Christ looks in you? Which one, where is your focus? That's what the Bible teaches us. Um, some people will argue that Women aren't even supposed to wear makeup, which again, the Bible is silent on. Uh, I could not teach that. But there are some people that actually teach that. They use all the negative presentations of, you know, painting face and red uh, and stuff like that, and gold and adornment. And, you know, they take things out of context. They'll, they'll, they'll use like um, uh, First Timothy 2 and say, see, you see, you're not even supposed to wear any makeup. Um, but as the Spirit's taught us over the years, every passage in Holy Scripture has a context to it. A context to it. In the case of 1 Timothy 2, 8 to 10, for example, we are reading about the church setting. Right now, this is this this setting right here. Go to 1 Timothy 2, verse 8. 1 Timothy 2, verse 8. In other words, you cannot use this passage to say women should never wear makeup. Or well, women should never, you know, dress up or look pretty for their husbands or what have you, or even for themselves, I guess. The, Bible, the Bible's pretty silent on it. 1 Timothy 2.8. Look at the context. This is a church situation, okay? Just like the one we're in, we're in right now. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling, Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. Respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold pearls or costly attire. Now, this is where the context matters, right? Back then, that's what a woman would do to attract attention to herself. She would do up her hair. She would wear gold, pearls, costly attire this kind of a thing. In other words, when I walk through the doors of the church, I want everybody to look at me because I'm literally like glistening, right? I want you to look at me. But with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. That's what you should adorn yourselves with. It doesn't say adorn yourselves so you look good walking through the doors. It says adorn yourselves with good works. And any man, if you're, that, if you're that worried, or women, right, uh, any person who knows Christ is going to say that's beautiful. It's much, I'll just say this, I'll just say this, and you can get mad at me, I don't even care. It's much more beautiful to see a woman hoeing the plants out there, to me. Sweating in the sun with dirt on their cheek. Much more beautiful. Hands down, not even close, more beautiful than some woman who comes in with skinny jeans and gold earrings and perfume and her hair done right. Much more beautiful. Amen, DJ? Yeah, I mean, it is. If you actually care about what godly people think, that's what it is. Adorn yourself with good works. I didn't say that. I didn't change my heart. Jesus Christ changed my heart. I say those things, so does DJ, obviously. I'm sure other people do, so it's not just he and I. We say those things because the truth is in us. We understand what true beauty actually is. It's not a set of diamond earrings. It's not a, it's not a, a gold necklace. It's not new pumps. It's not a new hairdo. It's not, I don't know, what else can you buy for $756 billion. Whatever you can buy in that list, or whatever you can get fixed for $76 billion, or $67, i am dyslexic, $67 billion. This is precisely, and I've said this, I'll say it again, maybe it's time, I don't know. It's precisely why I don't want anyone in this congregation to come in here with anything but modest attire. That's it. Just come in with modest attire. Men and women. This isn't a nightclub. Nor is this a place to be flaunting physical beauty. In fact, whenever I see it, I am personally repulsed by it because it's like an overt display of arrogance and self-absorption. Why would you ever come to a church like this with the intent of drawing attention to your beauty. Man or woman, why would you ever come to a church like this one with the intent of flaunting your beauty? Do you think that that thing is ever going to advance the kingdom of God here on earth? Or is it fair to say that you've now become a stumbling block for the men and women around you. Is that fair to say? Yep. Yep. Here's the overarching point the spirit's making here on this subtle point with respect to beauty. Go to 1 John 2:15. 1 John 2:15. 1 John 2:15. And the only reason he's settling on this is because beauty is another form of currency. That's the only reason. And he's just bringing it out. He's saying, all right, we picked on money enough, right? <laughs> and that, honestly, let's be fair. I'm not being a chauvinist or anything like that. I'm not drawing lines, on because I know it's both. But men tend to be a little bit more on the money side, and women tend to be a little bit more on the beauty side. So maybe he's just balancing the, the thing. I don't know. But there's a subtlety here with beauty. First John 2.15 Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, in other words, that entire economy around beauty is not from the Father but is from the world. That entire economy that the Spirit just highlighted, it's not from the Father, it's from the world. And you know what? Here's, what? here's what the Holy Bible has to say about that economy. Verse 17. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. You want to know where beauty ends up? In the garbage can. It sags off your body. Right? Amen? It's true. Why are only old people? Yep. Here's a news flash for you: <laughs> Physical beauty fades. Even if you've got the money to invest in the multi-billion-dollar industry we pondered earlier, or you're able to pay some cosmetic surgeon, you know, for a facelift or something, whatever they do with that 67 billion. The truth is that God warns you not to buy into that economy. It's a trap. That's the whole point. Don't invest, don't trade something of real value for something of counterfeit value, right? There's only 24 hours in a day. Some might argue the most precious thing you've got are those 24 hours. You have 24 hours and that's it. Why spend any of that time concerning yourself with counterfeits, whether it's chasing after money or chasing after beauty, and Solomon would say what? It's all striving after the wind. Why would you waste the precious thing, time you could be fellowshipping with God, time you could be contemplating Jesus Christ, time you could be spreading the gospel, time you could be loving someone else, why would you spend that precious treasure for this garbage, this ugliness? Well, getting back to our primary course of study now, up here in the board... You cannot serve two masters. Now, this is where this message gets really interesting. Really interesting. Um, And I need you to concentrate. How are we doing? Good. You cannot serve two masters. To invest in the world's economy is to disinvest in God's. Do you see that? I just explained the practical side of it. You have 24 hours a day. Every hour you don't spend with him, or every hour you spend over here, you don't spend with him. Does that make sense? To invest in the world's economy is to disinvest in God's. Go to Matthew six nineteen, Matthew 6, verse 19. I hope you're concentrating because he's going to reveal something very stark in a moment. And it's so plainly stated, it's inescapable. And I love it because you'll be delivered for it if you're stuck. If you're humble, you might go, you know, la, la la like some people do. But here's the point: to invest in the world's economy is to disinvest in God's Matthew six nineteen. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. You pick the treasure, you pick the earthly counterfeit: money, beauty, in- intellect, uh, reputation, uh, power But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If, then, the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? In other words, you're so trapped, you're so caught up in money or beauty or whatever that thing you treasure is, you can't even see straight. You think think that is light. You think that's the blessing, having that counterfeit treasure, because mom and dad lied to you, and your school teachers lied to you. And the people that you trusted lied to you. But here's, this is the crux. You ready? Look at verse 24. No one can serve two masters. No one. Does it say someone? It says literally. No one can serve two masters. For, he, for either he will hate the one and love the other... Or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Okay. On the board again. You cannot serve two masters. To, dis- to invest in the world's economy is to disinvest in God's. Okay. Do you see what the Bible's saying here? Concentrate. I don't want you to just understand how these two economies are diametrically opposed to one another. I know you get that; you've heard it a thousand times in this pulpit. I don't want you to just say, "Oh, that's you know, that world economy's bad and God's economy's good." I, you know, I don't want you to just say that. I want you to stop and take pause, and recognize one very important thing. Are you listening? Really? Hear my voice. You ready? Verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Do you hear it? No one can serve two masters. Here's what happens. You ready? For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Nobody can do it. No one's ever done it. Never. Never. So, Jesus teaches us that you cannot, as in not ever, serve two masters simultaneously. Hmm. In other words, here's the key principle the world economy and God's economy are mutually exclusive. I'll give you a Venn diagram up here on the board, if you remember this from math class. Right? On the left, what some Christians suppose to be true. That there's that little football, that little overlap. That you can do both, in other words. You can kind of sit in the middle, right? And be dipsukas. Double-minded, double-souled. That you can sit in the middle. That you can do this thing that Jesus Christ himself said, nobody can do it. <laughs> it's actually accurate on the right. The world economy and God's economy are mutually exclusive. There is no intersection, which means you, don't get, you can't abide in both at the same time. I hope you see the difference. And if you think you are somehow wiser than Jesus Christ himself, well, my friend, you have a much bigger problem than just money or beauty or whatever it is that has your affections. Again, the key point that I want you to digest here and now is that you cannot, no matter how slick you think you are, live a double life. You ready? You ready for the the whopper? I'm not going to leave. I could leave after this, but you ready? Here's why you can't live a double life. You will always have hate in your life. If you attempt to live a double life, you will always have hate in your life. Does that make sense? You will always abide somehow in hatred. That's not the design of God. Having hate in your life because you're attempting to live a double life, uh, clinging to something unholy, uh, it's truly cancerous to your peace and your happiness. Go to uh, James one five, James one verse five. You try to live a double life, you will always have hate in your life. Who wants that cancer in their life? Honestly, Jesus said it straight up. Right? You have one for, love for one and hatred for the other you try to squeeze them together, you will have hatred in your life. I hope you understand what I'm saying. If you try to bring them together, if you try to live both, if you try to live under the, 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 the sovereign of two masters, what you've basically done is brought hatred into your life. And even if it's flip-flop, even if you love this one and hate this one, you still brought hatred into your life because of the overlap. James 1, five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given, to, given him. But let him ask in faith. Some of you are going to have to go home this evening and, and say, what was that guy talking about? Like, I kind of get it. I sort of get it. Well, James 1, five. Look, if you lack the wisdom I just presented... I did the best, very best I could scripturally backed as a teacher. Filled with the Spirit, honestly. It's the very best I could do. If you're still a little confused, James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Then get on your knees in humility and pray. He'll give generously to all without reproach. But, verse 6, let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. And by the way, all good things are from heaven. So if you don't get anything from the Lord, what are you going to get? you get bad things, right? He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Up here on the board. The double-minded man. The Bible clearly states that this person is unstable in all his ways. Quote, a two-souled man is unstable in all his ways. That's Young's literal translation. It's just a literal. That's it. A two-souled man, a double-souled man, is unstable in all his ways. James 1.8. Instability, by definition, precludes peace. Peace means this. Right? Placid peace. Instability is this. A double-souled man is unstable in all his ways. This is peace and happiness. This is misery. This is hating your life, right? <laughs> this is having hatred. In your There's always going to be hate in your life. That's the point. Why? Well, it's because of what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Why do you think sometimes you don't want to come listen to the word of God being taught from this pulpit? Why do you not want to read the blogs when the title itself punches you in the face? Some of you are like, oh, I don't like that title. I think i got something to do. Right? You see the title like, oh, that's me. Finally come around. Why do you prefer to take issue with the man behind the pulpit rather than with God? It's because in those moments, you have to make a choice about your allegiances. You've got to choose to exit that little bubble you're living in that allows you to pretend to be living in both economies simultaneously. But you ready? Here's the ancillary, here's the, here's the punchline. God forbids it. God forbids that thing. And when you, have the, when you have God against you, you have his wrath against you. You have his judgment against you. Do you understand? God's not wanting to be messed around, right? God is not going to be mocked. God forbids double-souled, double-mindedness. He forbids it. A true believer can never persist in the world's economy because God won't allow it. You might run with it for a little while. Who does, Who hasn't done that? Probably this week, right? you like, I, I like this week. <laughs> and I'm paying for it. Last time I checked, Jesus doesn't lie. <laughs> and this is one of the distinctions of it, and this is how we're getting back to think about the gospel messages as of late. This is how you can distinguish a true believer from an unbeliever who just professes. A professing, unbelie- a professing Christian that's actually an unbeliever can live like hell the rest of their lives, can live double-minded because they don't have a conscience. That's, that's the litmus test that he's been putting before us, right? A true believer, though, can never persist in the world's economy. They will be haunted by their own good conscience until they either change or he decides to remove them from earth by the sin unto death. Go to James 4.3, where he wrote on this topic again. James 4, verse 3. You're not going to make a fool of God, let's put it that way. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your your hearts, you double-minded. And this is a part I love in verse 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Up here on the board, Here's an explanation of verse 9 in James 4, because I think it warrants it. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Up here on the board, James 4, 9 explain, let your flippant laughter and joy be turned into mourning and gloom when you realize the source of it is sin. Practically speaking, do not say I am blessed when you're living in the world's economy. Let your laughter, let all those good times that you're having, in the flesh, sinning away, thinking you can live that dip cost life. <laughs> let it be turned into mourning, uh, gloom. That's a good thing. Do you understand? Some of you, that's been what's going on in your own life. The Spirit's been turning up the the, the the volume, right? He's saying, yeah, that's you. You're the one addicted to money. You're the one addicted to beauty. You're the one addicted to yourself. All you do is look in the mirror, right? All you do is talk about yourself. All you worry about is your reputation. All you worry about is getting ahead on the job. All you worry about is this. All you worry about what your neighbors think and what other people think, blah, 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 blah. All these things, it's all garbage. But you're laughing along the way, you know, when the neighbor says, Oh, look at you, hey, honey, right? Nobody, nobody. I'm the only one with perverse neighbors. My neighbors don't do that. Terry's like, What? What neighbor's doing this? She's like, K-k-k-k. Of course, you don't load from down here, do you? I have no guns, apparently. In the Air Force, they let me shoot an M16 once and then he took it away. <laughs> Let your flippant laughter and joy be turned into mourning and gloom when you realize the source of it is sin. That's a very good thing. If you're having a gay old time living the high life in, in double-mindedness, eventually it's going to catch up. If you're a believer, it definitely will catch up with you. Right? What does verse 10 say? Simply, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Don't be all happy because the world's exalting you, because you've invested in the world economy. Be happy when God exalts you. Wait on God's timing. Honestly. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. To our previous point up here in the board, the double-minded man the Bible clearly states that this person is unstable in all his ways. A two-souled man is unstable in all his ways. Any questions? James 1.8. The overarching principle up here on the board is that you cannot serve two masters. To invest in the world's economy is to disinvest in God's. And then to retrace our message all the way to where this train of thought began up here on the board... The value of Jesus. Jesus' person is the treasure. I hope you saw the string of pearls. I hope you do. We went down. We came back out. Jesus is the treasure. When a person values him above all else, their heart is with him always. We ended up at this point, at the close of Sunday's message, because the Spirit had us pondering the fact that a lot of so-called Christians nowadays aren't actually saved. Why? Because their hearts have never departed from the wrong treasure. Think about, you know, remember the parable of the soils? Someone gets choked out by the riches of the world? That's what we've been talking about. Their heart has never departed from that trap. And because they've always treasured that trap, that thing, that counterfeit, more than their creator, more than our Lord and Savior, they're stuck. doesn't matter what they say, because God sees the heart. It doesn't matter what prayer they've said, because God sees the heart. Jesus isn't their treasure. Frankly, their self is. They value themselves more than Jesus. And what did Jesus say? You've got to what? Deny yourself if you want to follow me. You've got to treasure me more than you even. You've got to give up the self-life to be mine. So, before we close, let's get back to our primary passage in Proverbs. Go to Proverbs 17 1. Proverbs 17, 1, where all of this began. We've only been through the first three verses. Incredible. Proverbs 17, verse 1. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Why? All the above, my friends. Verse 2. A servant who deals wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share the inheritance as one of the brothers. The crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. Here's what the Bible tells us about the human heart up here on the board. Jeremiah 17.9, I'll give you the amplified classic this time. The heart is deceitful above all things and is exceedingly perverse and corrupt and severely, mortally sick. Who can know it, perceive, understand, be acquainted with his own heart and mind. and We see this play out. Go to John 3.19 quickly. John 3.19. We see this play out here. The human heart, we're born. It's wretched. It's awful. John 3.19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Such is the basis of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The humble person receives saving faith, The arrogant doesn't. And there's no in-between. The Word ensures us of this. There's no reliance on self or treasuring self above Jesus and salvation. And God tests the hearts. So there's no fooling Him. Consider the Spirit's work here as a grace gift. Go to Hebrews 4.12. Hebrews 4.12. He's doing you a big favor. Hebrews 4, verse 12. This is why we read the Word of God. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In other words, we drop the self-life. Think about how we started off with Paul. It's all rubbish. It's all garbage. Anyways, we drop all of that for him. All right, let's go back to our primary passage and get a quick taste of what's coming up on Sunday. Proverbs 17.1, then I'll close. Proverbs 17, verse 1. surprised you guys don't have that bookmarked yet. It's kind of suggested it about a thousand times. Did you guys not have those little things? Look at, you see Nadine? Nadine's like, I did. I don't know about these people, but I did. <laughs> that was awesome. You better get out of here quick. <laughs> Proverbs 17, 1. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. A servant who deals wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share the inheritance as one of the brothers. The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and the Lord tests hearts. Verse 4, we haven't even gotten this far, this is cool. An evildoer listens to wicked lips and a liar gives ear to a mischievous tongue. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. Oh, man. That sounds like a, the, the prelude to a horror movie, right? Because you know we're going through that, right? You know we're going through that like as a congregation. <laughs> oh, man. So we've got interesting topics uh, being moved to the front burner i'm so excited honestly it's all good it's all for our sanctification amen all right let's borrow heads dearly father thank you so much for this incredible privilege called tonight this message that was ordained from eternity past father for the ears of this congregation because you love them and you do want to sanctify them and you do want them to come to the knowledge of you by means of grace father thank you so much for giving us the strength and the wherewithal and the faculties to be able to digest the word of God. Father, we just ask for your blessings as we take all that we've learned here this evening back to the privacy of our own souls, back to our families, and then your will be done out to a world that needs it so desperately. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit we do pray. Amen. Thank you.